The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Aurora Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Manus Friedman is a world-renowned author, lecturer, mentor, and social commentator. He is founder and dean of Beis Chana International, the first yeshiva ever established exclusively for women. He will now present a lecture entitled, Do You Believe in Life After Life? Here's how Torah sees the process of life and death. When a baby is conceived, what's going on? The miracle that scientists or doctors marvel at, the miracle of conception, they're looking at the most, at the most external, at the most superficial part of the whole process. At the moment of conception, the, the conception, whatever you call it at that moment, is a complete soul, a complete being, a human being, without a body. I mean, hardly a body. But there's intelligence, there's emotions, there's awareness, there's sensitivity. All of that is already there. The only thing that is lacking is speech, articulation. Probably because it has no one to talk to. <laughs> so it doesn't really need speech. Other than that, it's a complete human being. And this is why the sages have always told us, and of course our grandmothers always told us, that when a woman is pregnant, she has to be careful what she's exposed to, what happens around her, and even her own thoughts and feelings have to be in consideration of the baby. Because the baby hears and feels and knows and cares and reacts. So what gives a child, as you mentioned before, a child is born, and every mother knows this, every child is born with a complete personality. Where did they get this personality from? When did they develop this personality? During the nine months. And it's shaped by what the mother was experiencing, what was going on in the house, the sounds. In other words, the, the fetus hears everything, but without ears. It sees everything, but without eyes. It understands everything without a brain. As the body develops, the soul settles into the body, and then it doesn't hear so well because it has to use its ears. And it doesn't see so well because it has to use its eyes. So God forbid a person who can't see, born blind, the soul can see, the eyes don't work. And that's why this child can give birth to a seeing child. Because the ability to see 
exists in the soul, and he can pass it on to his children, even though his own eyes don't work so good. David HaMelech makes an amazing statement in Tehillim. And if he writes it in the Tehillim, it's because we need to know it. Because it's written about us, for us. It's not really about him. There's a statement in Tehillim that says, Ki ovi ve'imi azavuni v'hashem ya'asfeni. My mother and father abandoned me, but God gathered me in. And the Gemara asks, when did his mother and father abandon him, and why is he talking lush and hara about his parents? Why is he bad-mouthing his parents in public? Here's what the Gemara says. When a soul comes into the body, it goes through a trauma that causes it to forget. Why don't we remember those wonderful months in the womb? Because of the trauma. But Sadikim, when they come into the world, their body is holy, so their soul doesn't go into such a trauma, such a shock. And therefore, they forget nothing. They remember. King David is saying, I remember being conceived. It was a very scary moment. And I looked around to see who's in charge. Who's taking care of me at this very vulnerable, dangerous moment. And my father was sleeping. And my mother is sleeping. And I'm all alone. And I'm very small. <laughs> at the moment of conception, parents are sleeping. But I was reassured. I was okay because God was there gathering me in, bringing me into a body. So every soul goes through that. Every soul that is conceived experiences a moment of fear, trauma, and survives that trauma because God is there taking care. So how do we know that there's a God? How do we experience God's presence? If you survive conception, it's because you trust God. He's right there, making sure everything ends up right. The nose, where it belongs, you know, all the details. Then David HaMelech makes another amazing statement. Even as I go in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with me. I am not afraid because God is with me. And again, the Gemara asks, what is this valley of the shadow and death? And was if it's a valley of shadow of death, don't go there. <laughs> Even when I go there, I'm not afraid. Don't go. Stay home. <laughs> so the Gemara makes another amazing statement. King David is describing his birth, the trauma of birth. Now the parents are not sleeping. Mother is certainly not sleeping. Father may be fainting, but not sleeping. 
The birth process, the birth canal, is a valley of a shadow of death. It's a valley because it's a dip between two wonderful lives. Life in the womb, life outside the womb. But there's a valley in between where you're nishtahin or nishtaheh. You've left the life of the womb and you haven't yet reached or established yourself in life outside the womb, so it's a valley. And there's a shadow of death. It's a dangerous moment. How does the fetus survive that trauma, that fear? And again, the answer is, I was not afraid because you were with me. Every fetus born into the world experienced God's presence. And that's what allowed it to survive the trauma. What's really interesting, they say that when a person goes through a near-death experience, they see themselves going through a dark tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And there's an angel urging you to come into the light. A near-death experience is actually a flashback to birth. You remember being born. Dark tunnel, a light at the end of the tunnel, and an angel, doctor, urging you to come out. So what happens when people go through a near-death experience? They, of course, experience the trauma, but they also experience the comforting presence of God. And that's why after a near-death experience, everyone becomes a believer. Where did the belief come from? Anytime you scare somebody, they believe in God? Is that what it is? If you're sufficiently frightened, you become a believer. It's because of the flashback. Birth is a near-death experience. And what helps you survive it? God's presence. So when you have a second near-death experience, and you have a flashback to your birth, you go through the fear, but also through the reassuring presence of God. Problem is that the trauma makes us forget consciously what that experience was. So the soul comes into the body. It's a complete soul. The soul doesn't develop from small to, to, to adult. It's a complete soul. Everything you say, everything you feel, everything you hear the child absorbs. Today, since uh, abortion became legal, doctors are concerned that the fetus will be aware of the conversation or even the thought when a mother is pregnant and sits down to discuss whether or not they should have the baby. At any stage in the pregnancy, the baby is aware. 
had a very interesting experience. I dabble a little bit in homeopathic medicines. And one of the things that they say is that uh, there's a very good remedy, a very simple remedy for grief that gets stuck and you can't grieve it out. A person stuck in grief, this remedy is amazing, it's like magic. But they say that a surviving twin Parents may not even know there were twins. But the surviving twin is born grieving because he lost a sibling, best friend. The surviving twin won't be able to process that grief because he's not conscious of what he's grieving about or that even that he's grieving. And so that grief will be stuck in the child and the child will be frustrated, frustrating, difficult, unhappy for no apparent reason. Parents won't know what to do with the child. You give the child this remedy and you have a new, new and improved. I mentioned this once in a talk in California. And a woman came over to me afterwards and says, I have an 11-year-old boy. He's impossible. He's in his third school, and they're threatening to throw him out. And now that you mention it, I remember he was, he's a surviving twin. She gave him the remedy, and within days, the school called and said, what are you doing differently? He's cooperating. The grief dissolved and he was a happy child again so everything the child hears and sees has an effect today when people discuss abortion the child hears it and the child is born with an attitude about its own life that it's uh, negotiable and so they're reckless with their own lives they're a little suicidal. So when Mrs. Reagan, if you remember, Mrs. Reagan said, just say no to drugs. Why? Well, it can kill you. The children of today say, yeah, so? That's the whole thrill? That's not a reason not to do it. So there's a certain recklessness, carelessness about life that didn't exist before. So they're, they're, they're concerned that that kind of conversation should not happen once there's a pregnancy. Because even if you decide now that you're not going to have the abortion, the child already heard the conversation. So his life is negotiable. Not a good way to start. Same is true in many other things. Anger between mother and father. Uh, ugliness between mother and father. The child grows up and you say, so you want to get married? Not really. Doesn't appeal to me. All we're going to do is fight anyway. 
So, our sages and our grandmothers were absolutely right. A pregnant woman should be protected. No surprises, no bad news, no arguments, no fights, because the baby is listening. And a baby hears everything. Now, the same is true on the other end of life. Let's say a person is really very ill and goes into a coma. Does he hear? Does he see? Is he aware? Of course he is. More than when he wasn't in a coma, because when the person is in the coma, the soul hears without the ears, sees without the eyes, thinks without the brain. And that's why measuring brainwave activity is not a good indicator because maybe the brain isn't thinking, but the soul is. If you could bring the soul back into the body, the brain will think again. So life comes in gradual stages to the body and leaves the body in gradual stages. That's why we sit Shiva. God forbid a person passes away, we sit Shiva. The first three days are very sad. The next four days, eh, not so sad. The end of seven days, complete change. Get up, go back to business. But for 30 days, shloshim, there's still a certain amount of grief. Till the end of the year, there's a lesser amount of grief. And after that, there's the yard site once a year. The real meaning of that, and you know, we fail to notice this, the, the, the beauty and the brilliance of it. What, is, what does it mean when Torah tells you to grieve? For how long to grieve? When to grieve? Can you really dictate that? What if you don't want to grieve? And what if you want to start next week, not the first week? The whole grieving process is part of the levaya. It's part of the funeral. In Hebrew, the word for funeral is uh, to, to, uh, to accustom, to follow. Of course, technically you follow behind the casket. But what it means is escort the soul to its resting place. It doesn't end at the funeral. After the funeral, we continue to escort the soul. When the soul is in most pain, we share that pain. That's the first three days. The next four days of the Shiva, the soul is getting used to its new life. And so we ratchet down a little bit keeping up with the soul. 30 days the soul is getting accustomed, getting settled, getting... A, so we feel that discomfort and we, accust, we continue to follow the soul through its experience. So we don't just say goodbye and walk away. The adjustment is painful. Yeah. So the Torah is not telling you how you should feel. The Torah is telling you what the soul is going through and you empathize and share that 
And in that way, you escort the soul to its rest. You don't stop until the soul is really resting. And that takes about a year. What happens when the soul gets to heaven? Now, if we think materialistically, physically, we think heaven is up, hell is down. You're going down to hell, or you're going up to heaven. It's not exactly the case. And what happens in, in hell? What happens in hell? Everybody knows what happens in hell. You burn. You burn in hell. What part of you burns in hell? Your soul. How does a soul burn? So Dante's f a picture of the inferno is, is ridiculous. You're talking about souls. It doesn't go down because hell is not a place. And it doesn't burn because souls don't burn. The only way a soul can experience pain is shame. Burning in shame, yes. That's the fire of hell. The fire of hell is a burning shame. What is the soul ashamed of? Basically, it doesn't fit. It's a soul among souls, but it doesn't look like a soul, it doesn't smell like a soul, and it doesn't know how to be a soul because it's gotten so used to being a body. So to put it graphically, a soul that's back to the world of souls that still feels like a body or smells like a body is very embarrassed. It's very shameful and it burns with shame. Now there are some souls, they come back to the world of souls and it's as if they never left. Pick right up where they left off. That's heaven. How long can a soul maintain an attachment to the body? Maximum 12 months. By the end of 12 months, it has moved on. It doesn't remember the body anymore. We say Kaddish for 11 months to help the soul through that painful adjustment. 11 months, not 12 months, because we don't want to suggest that any soul needed the maximum 12 months. But also, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to uh, cheat it out of help if it, if it should need help. So we go to 11 months and not embarrass the soul more by going to... And that's why we're so careful not to say an extra Kaddish. When the 11 months are up, you stop because you're trying to help the soul get over its embarrassment. Don't add more embarrassment by going beyond the 11 months. So where exactly are heaven and hell? They're right next to each other. You have two souls side by side. One is in heaven and the other one is in hell because one of them is comfortable being a soul and the other one is so embarrassed. 
and sitting next to a soul that's comfortable is even more embarrassing because the contrast is so obvious. So that's what hell means. And that's why hell is a, a process that, uh, that cleanses, not punishes. We call it punishment. I think maybe we picked that up from the Christians. It is a cleansing process preparing the soul to go to heaven. It doesn't have to go anywhere physically. It goes from being ashamed to being perfectly comfortable. Now, the soul in heaven experiences great pleasure. Obviously, there are no problems there. Everything is revealed. All the puzzles and mysteries that it couldn't figure out and couldn't understand while on earth all become clear. The parts of Torah that they couldn't understand are explained. And the visual picture is souls sit in yeshiva in heaven and study Torah without any distraction, without any um, difficulties. Pretty much like what we're doing here. So this is being in heaven. But the soul is not content in heaven. And that's why the expression, uh, unfortunately we, we all use it, the expression, he's in a better place. That's not Jewish. You can even hear it in the tone. He's in a better place now. See, that sounds so Christian. <laughs> Jews don't talk like that. You know? <laughs> Jews will say, stop fetching, he's in a better place. <laughs> that sounds more Jewish. <laughs> you know, but that soft, you know, that, that. So you know it's wrong. There is no better place. There is no better place than on earth. There's no better place for a soul than in a body. As painful as it might be, as frustrating as it might be, it's the best place. Because in a body, a soul can actually serve God. In heaven, the soul is being served. For Jews, that sounds like a retirement home. A beautiful retirement home. They give you a gold watch, <laughs> three meals a day, they teach you, they, yeah, it's, it's all fine. So it's a much more comfortable place, but better? No. Souls in heaven can't wait for Mashiach to come so that they can return to their bodies and serve God. We would rather work than get paid. Nah, you know, ideally, because the job is more precious than the reward. To serve is more precious than the pay we get for it. So we are not very comfortable being in heaven. It's okay for a month, two months, but enough. Got to go back to work. Now, what happens when the souls come back into bodies? 
Not born again, but resurrected. The physical body that the soul inhabited during its life on earth is rebuilt. It decomposed, now it has to recompose. The same body, not a new body. That's called the resurrection of the dead. The, the soul doesn't need to be resurrected. It doesn't die. It comes back to a body, but the body had decomposed, had gone back to the dust. Now it needs to recompose, like running a film backwards. The reason is because doing mitzvahs is only possible if you have a body. Without a body, you can't do a mitzvah. So to reward the soul in heaven for doing mitzvahs and let the body sleep in the dust, that's not justice. The real reward for mitzvahs has to include the body. In fact, the body is primary. And that's why the soul must come back to the body to receive its reward. The Gemara gives an interesting analogy. There was a lame guy and a blind guy. And they were hungry. And they wanted to steal some fruit from an orchard. But there was a wall around the orchard. So the lame guy couldn't climb the wall and the blind guy couldn't see his way. So the blind guy took the lame guy on his shoulders and the lame guy directed the blind guy to the wall and was able to reach over the wall and steal some fruit. Now they were caught, and the judge said, who do I punish here? Because the blind guy couldn't do it without the lame guy, and the lame guy couldn't do it without the blind guy. So the judge decided they both need to be punished, but in the way that they sinned. So put the lame guy back on the shoulders of the blind guy and punish them as one. That's the analogy to the reward. How do you reward a body and soul? The soul couldn't do the mitzvah without the body. The body couldn't do the mitzvah without the soul. How do you reward them? Well, put them back together again the way they were when they did the mitzvah and then reward them. That's the resurrection. There's also reincarnation. You have had a few lives so far. Each life had a body. When you come back, which body will you come into? Actually, we're not coming back. Time's up. So there's no time for another incarnation. So this is it. This is our final. But those souls who have had past lives and are now going to come back into a body, which body will they come into? Some people suggest that they get to choose their favorite body. Others suggest you get to choose the best parts of each body. <laughs> like a Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> but that's getting away from the truth. The truth is, every body did mitzvahs, so each of the bodies needs to be rewarded. A soul can give life to more than one body. 
So when the resurrection happens, the soul will inhabit all the bodies that it lived in in its past lives. And like a flame, if you light another candle from the flame, it doesn't diminish. So each soul, each body will have a complete soul, but the same soul. We're going to be one big happy family. How do I know there's a resurrection coming? Well, yeah, they say there's no more reincarnation. No more reincarnation. Yeah. Now it's time for resurrection. Yeah. These are very big words. Yeah. Um, I read it in the Reader's Digest. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was one of the serious articles. <laughs> No, you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose. The soul goes into the part of the soul that succeeded in this body will go into that body. The part of the soul that succeeded in the other body, you know, as we succeed at kindness, at study, at um, devotion. So the thing you excelled in, in each body, that part of your soul will go into that Soul splits up. But each part is a complete life, is a complete being. Now, what would make you think reincarnation is over? The reason reincarnation is over is because Moshiach has to come before the year 6,000. We are now in the year 5,774. I don't know how long it takes for a soul to turn around. <laughs> what's the, what, what's it called? The turnaround? Turnaround time. But it can't happen in, immediately. So there's no time really for another incarnation. So it must be that we are here now for the finishing touches. One or two more mitzvahs and we're done. Probably, but it doesn't, doesn't make it impossible. I mean, it's not like, well, God can resurrect dust, but not ash. Whatever it is, God will manage, right? But out of respect for the body, we don't do cremation. In fact, there are a few people in history whose bodies went to heaven with them. They were not buried. They did not return to the dust. Uh, few people. Eliyahu. The Baal Shem Tev was given the option. His body was holy enough to go to heaven. And he was given the option. Do you want your body in heaven or do you want your body buried back in the earth? And he chose to be buried. Because there's something very powerful about resurrecting the body. 
you go to heaven with your body, you're not resurrected and you're missing something. So there's a great virtue to going back to the earth. And uh, we could cheat the body out of that if we do a cremation. So we don't, we don't do that. Yeah? A number of Orthodox Jewish scholars and authorities have indicated that many souls have returned already from before and during the Holocaust. So the turnaround time is brief. And there's that much turnaround time between now and the year 6,000. So did you mean to say most souls are not coming back, but a few might? There's, there's a little bit of a confusion there. We don't really know that souls came back after the, after the Holocaust. We know that the trauma can be re-experienced by, uh, by people who were not even there. I'm not sure that that means reincarnation. Let me tell you this interesting story. You've heard of the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson? She was married to Andrew. She wrote a book with a very um, inventive title. It's called Sarah, the Duchess of York. <laughs> and she was, she was doing the book tour and came to Minnesota. Her agent called me and said she wants to speak to a rabbi. Could I find time to talk to her? So I went to uh, the hotel where she was staying. She had the entire top floor with a lot of security. And I'm curious as to, you know, why would she need to talk to a rabbi? There was a lot of, a lot of bad press about her that she's vulgar and she's cheap and she's... Anyway, her question, the reason she needed to talk to a rabbi, she wanted to know if there really is such a thing as reincarnation. So, whoa. Why would you want to know that? Why are you interested? She was the spokesman for Weight Watchers. <coughs> How does that connect to reincarnation? So she tells me the story. She went to a Holocaust memorial. And sitting there, I think it was in Auschwitz, sitting there listening to one of the speakers, she suddenly had this really intense experience or feeling. She had to leave the room. It was overwhelming. And she, she assumed that, that that experience or that feeling was because she was a Jew and died in the Holocaust. And she, the memory just came flooding back to her and overwhelmed her. So she wants to know if that's correct. Do we believe in reincarnation? So I said, uh, you know, you're surrounded by priests and ministers. Why are you asking me? Why didn't you ask them? Well, she gave me an earful. She doesn't trust them as far as you can throw them. They are corrupt to the core. Nothing they say is true. In fact, she didn't want to get divorced. Nor did Andrew. 
and in their church there is no divorce. But because the royal family wanted to break them up, the ministers invented some kind of a cockamamie process by which they can dissolve the marriage. But as far as she's concerned, she's still married, and they're raising their children together. I said, did you move your stuff out of the, uh, out of the palace? She says, no. I said, then you are still married according to Jewish law. She was thrilled. Concerning the reincarnation, the second crusades, when they were coming back defeated from the Holy Land, vented their frustrations on Jews. Everywhere they went, they attacked the Jewish community and massacred Jews. There were Jews living in the city of York. Then they moved to New York. But they lived in York, and the Crusaders were approaching the city of York. The Jews went to the Duke of York asking for protection. The Duke said, they're much stronger than me. There's no way I can fight them. I can't protect you. But I'll give you a castle. Barricade yourself in the castle and maybe you'll be able to stand, up, stand them off. So they all gathered in the castle and they, they survived for 10 days or two weeks. But then the crusaders broke through and when they got to the Jews who were huddled in one of the rooms, they had all killed themselves. Like in Masada. Sarah is the Duchess of York. Now, it can't be that she was a Jew in a past life and a non-Jew in this life. So that wouldn't work. I said, maybe the experience you felt was a flashback because you were the Duke of York or the Duchess of York. And you had your own little Shoah. You had your own little tragedy there that bothered you and you couldn't save the Jews and that's what you were feeling. She said, I never heard that story. I said, well, it was in Clifford Castle. And that was very f too familiar unless she got really... Anyway, the end of the story is she endorsed her book, signed the book for me, and hands me the book upside down. And she says, uh, excuse me for the picture. There's a picture of her on the cover. The cover is completely black. She's dressed completely in black from her neck to her ankles. Very modest. I mean, you don't see anything. It's all black. Her foot is in color, and she's not wearing a shoe. And she turned the book upside down, and she said, excuse me for the picture. Not such a callous person after all. So reincarnation 
is a return of a soul that needs to have another life, but sometimes re-experiencing a trauma, reliving something, a flashback, doesn't necessarily mean reincarnation. So the Holocaust experience somehow has spread and people have nightmares of being in the Holocaust and they weren't Jewish, they weren't, they weren't European, they, weren't, they have no business having that kind of a nightmare. But then again, what nightmare do you have a business? Ghosts under your bed? When did you experience that? Monsters in your closet? So there are certain things that haunt us even if we weren't there and didn't experience it. Yeah? What's, uh, it's against halacha, I understand, like, on these talk shows, they'll have uh, mediums who will communicate. But if, um, I guess, I'm, I have no respect to authority, but what, if it would give the person a sense of comfort to... Fine. I don't know if it's against halacha. What's the question? The question is, if you go to a medium who contacts your uh, departed... Uh, friend or, or family member. Is that against halacha if it gives you comfort? It's not against halacha unless you plan your life based on that information. In other words, predicting the future is forbidden. But to find out that your grandmother misses you, gives them hate. Now, but can you trust any of these guys? That's a different question. Oh, I see someone, uh, their name begins with an M. Your father, does his name begin with an M? No. His name is Irving. <laughs> uh, the family name begin with an M? No. Jacobson. Oh, Mr. Jacobson. <laughs> I'm getting a message from your cat. Cats. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there time measure in Olamaba? Is there time yeah. in heaven? Or... Yes. There, there is obviously because your soul experiences its own yard site, the anniversary of its death. The soul remaining in touch with, with earth with family, with experiences time. A soul that has never been on earth doesn't, doesn't understand time. Also, a soul that has never been born doesn't have a name. There are no names in heaven. Once a soul has been on earth and was given a name, that name remains in effect. When you say the name, the soul reacts like in a crowded room and you hear your name called, you react. So the soul doesn't have a name before it comes down, doesn't experience time before it comes down, and uh, doesn't have relationships. But once it does, the relationship remains, time remains, and the name remains. And that's why when we make a Mishaberach, you mention the name. You... Uh, you tap into the energy of that soul by mentioning its name. And the Rebbe once the mentioned can the soul see? that, just a second, the Rebbe once mentioned 
How is it that so many people come to shul for Yisker when they wouldn't come to shul for any other reason? How is that? You don't believe in God, you don't believe in Torah, you don't believe in heaven or hell, but you got to come say Yisker. What is that? And the Rebbe said, it's the parent drags the kid to the synagogue <laughs> to say Yisker because, because the soul needs it, wants it. So the soul is actually having a powerful effect on the child and dragging him off to shul. Also, we have a custom that when we ask the four questions on Pesach at the Seder, we introduce it with Tate ich will bau fir kashes. Father, I'm going to ask you four questions. Everybody says it, not just children. And even someone whose father had passed away says, Tate ich will bau fir kashes. And when you do that, your father comes to the Seder, as painful as that may be for the soul. So it must be that asking your father the question is so valuable and so meaningful that it justifies the pain that the soul feels having to re-enter the, the physical space. So they're very much alive. Very much real. Yeah. You mentioned earlier you talked about a homeopathic remedy for someone stuck deep in grief. What's the name of that remedy? Ignatia. Ignatia. E-C-H. I. I. I-G. Yeah. Origin of the soul of a convert into and out of Judaism. There is, no, there is no conversion out of. When a Jew becomes a Christian, he does it like a Jew. But his children now become Christians. Well, if the mother is not... Yeah. yeah, if the mother is not Jewish, the children are never Jewish. But if the mother is Jewish, but she raises her children not Jewish, and those children are raised not Jewish... They're all Jewish. They're all Jewish. Can't get out... You can't, you can't sin your way out. <laughs> what about the non-Jewish souls? What about them? What about non-Jewish souls? What's the problem? <laughs> well, you have Rahmanas for them. What, what's the question? What happens for them? Oh, what happens to non-Jewish souls? If the soul was righteous, the person was righteous, then the soul will gain or acquire eternity and will have a portion in the world to come. If it's not righteous, it's a mortal soul and it dies. It doesn't go to hell. Hell is a Jewish neighborhood. It's a Jewish ghetto. <laughs> Can the soul see? Yeah, like, is your mother really watching? Your mother is really watching. And doesn't understand why you're not calling. 
Yeah. Um, well, I have uh, several questions to say of people. First of all, with regarding the Holocaust, the souls of the died in the Holocaust, wouldn't they, by virtue of being martyrs, have gone directly to God Eden and not need to reincarnate again? You see, reincarnation is not a punishment, and it's not necessarily a, 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 a repair or rectification. Moshe was reincarnated into Rabbi Akiva. So reincarnation can happen for one of two reasons. Either because you didn't finish your job, so you get another term, or because there's more good that you can do that can't be accomplished in one lifetime. So it's not necessarily a negative thing to come back to be reincarnated. But that doesn't, that doesn't prove that people from the Holocaust have been reincarnated. Okay, so there's no truth that a martyr doesn't... Oh, you're, they could still reincarn. They don't need to reincarn, but they could on their own. Not on their own, but if there's still more good for them to do, they could be. Although reincarnation, as we spoke yesterday, is really uh, martyrdom, is the final touching perfection, the crown. After that, you really don't need any more. Yeah. You can't get any better than that. Um, also, so, I find that when a soul, like say one, one of us, our soul, if we were to pass away and, and reincarnate, it would only be a spark of the soul. It's not really the whole thing. So it's never the exact same. It's never the whole soul because some part of the soul achieved what it was supposed to achieve in this lifetime. That part stays in heaven. So when you go to your grandmother's grave, there's some part of her that is still there, the best part. Even if she is reincarnated in the person standing next to you. <laughs> so i got to tell you two little things, two stories. Um, there was this king who had four wives. One wife, he pampered. He pampered her all the time. The second wife, he would take with him wherever he went to show her off. The third wife he would turn to for support and advice. And the fourth wife he neglected completely. He neglected. When it came time for him to die, he said to his first wife, the one that he pampered, will you come with me? And she said, no, you go your way, I'll go mine. He said to the second wife, the one that he always took with him wherever he went, will you come with me? And she said, no, you always took me around and showed me off wherever you went. When you die, someone else will take me around and show me off. So you go your way and I'll go mine. He said to the third wife, the one he always turned to for support and advice, will you come with me? I need you. And this wife said, uh, yeah, part of the way, till the cemetery, but not further. 
He said to his fourth wife, the one that he neglected all her life, will you come with me? And she said yes. The first wife, the one you pamper, is your body. We feed our body, we take care of our body, we worry about our body, we run to the doctor for our body, we pamper the body. When it comes time to die, the body says, you go your way, I'll go mine. The second wife is our possessions, our wealth. We take it with us, we show it off. The bling. When it comes time to die, you say, come with me. Somebody will inherit me and show me off. The third wife, the one you turn to for advice, that's your support system, your family, and your friends. When it comes time to die, they'll accompany you till the cemetery, but not further. The fourth wife, that's your soul. It will go with you in this life and in the life to come. It therefore does not deserve to be neglected. So when we do a mitzvah, we are nurturing our soul, we're paying attention to our soul, we're being nice to our soul, and that's a good investment. There's a beautiful poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's called The Psalm of Life. It's a long poem. But there's this beautiful line there. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. From dust you are and to dust returnest was never spoken of the soul. So we have within us a little piece of eternity, a little piece of holiness, a little piece of God. If we nurture it, we satisfy the purpose for which we were born. If we neglect it, not so good. So every mitzvah we do, we're basically tapping into that part of ourselves that is godly, that naturally does good, naturally does mitzvahs, is comfortable with mitzvahs, like a princess who marries a peasant and goes to live on the farm. And after two weeks, as much as she loves the peasant, she's unhappy. And the peasant wants to make her happy because he's a loyal, devoted husband. And he, of course, immediately assumes that the princess is unhappy because there aren't enough potatoes in the house. So he brings home more potatoes. And the princess is not happier. So he thinks, ugh, not, toma- not potatoes, tomatoes. He brings home more tomatoes. Princess is not happy. He thinks, no, 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 it's the, it's the house, the hut. It needs new straw. So he replaces the straw. And the princess is sadder than before. He runs out of ideas. He doesn't know what to do to make her happy. So he confronts her. And he says, what's wrong with you? I've given you everything a person could possibly want. Why are you not happy? And the princess says, back home in the palace, 
we had royal orchestra playing the most beautiful music in the world. And we had the greatest philosophers would come and give lectures. It was just amazing. And the flowers in the royal garden with the exotic plants, it was just beautiful. That's what I miss. And I see you trying to make me happy with potatoes and with tomatoes. And I realize you're a good man, but you have no idea what a princess needs. The soul is a princess, and it comes down into the body. And the body is very loyal to the soul. And if the soul is not happy, the body tries to make it happy by eating, by drinking. A new house, a bigger house, new straw, more straw. And the soul is thinking, oh, you have no idea. You're a good man, but you have no idea what a princess needs. So what can be the solution? The king, the father of the princess, knowing that this is going to happen, sends along to the farm little pieces of the palace so that even living on the farm, the princess can feel at home. The soul comes down to, to earth from heaven, and the Torah is given to us from heaven. Torah, those are little pieces of the palace to make the princess comfortable during its life on earth. So the Torah is there for you. It matches your soul. It's what your soul really needs to make you happy. No Jew is happy if he's not a happy Jew. So every mitzvah you do nourishes your soul, makes your soul happier. When your soul is happier, it's more comfortable with the body. When it's more comfortable with the body, the body is healthier. It's holistic. It's holistic. And then on a practical note, if you want to try this remedy, Ignatia, you just go to a health food store, Whole Foods, you get this little tube, cost about $6, you take only three of the pills, if you have pent up unprocessed grief, it's, it'll, how do you spell relief? <laughs> Ignatia. I-G-N-A-T-I-A. Why are we sad when someone passes away if it's all part of the process? Even the biggest tzaddik who knows that he's going straight to heaven with a, with a box seat doesn't want to die. Because when you go to heaven, God will take care of you. We would rather take care of him. We would rather do mitzvahs than be rewarded for the mitzvahs. So the tragedy is can't do mitzvahs anymore. Yes, but it's sad. It's a great loss, the loss of mitzvahs.